God's word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angels said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be a great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angels answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to come into your presence. We have brought our praises before you in song and prayer We've confessed our sin and been reminded of our forgiveness that all our sins are nailed to the cross. God, you have made this fellowship sweet thus far. And yet, God, you are one who tells us to bring all our cares before you. So we do so now. God, we bring up before you those who are sick. God, we pray that you'd be with, uh, continue to be with Fred Justice and Miss Barbara McGirt as they heal from their back surgery. Uh, dear God, we pray that you'd be with Miss Louise Hollis, who's in the hospital this morning. God, we pray that you would allow her to overcome this bronchitis. Uh, dear God, I pray that you'd be with Olivia, Lord, as she continues to heal from this rash. Father, we pray for uh, all those in our congregation who have uh, needs that need to be met, God, both physical and financial needs. We pray that you would remind them that you are God with us, our Emmanuel, who will be with us now until the end of the age. God, I just pray for our churches, our Baptist churches throughout our, our convention, God, who are giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this season. God, we pray that this would be a record year of giving for our churches. God, as our churches continue to struggle with baptisms, God, I pray that you would continue to, to, to change the hearts of your people uh, through the giving of their resources uh, to your name. Lord, your word says that where their treasure is, there their heart will be also. So, God, we pray that our hearts, our heart here would be towards the nations, would be towards the lost, would be towards those who are hurting. Father, we pray that you would be with uh, our fellow churches this morning here in, in Rock Hill. God, uh, we, we pray, God, that you would be with North Rock Hill this morning. God, we pray that you would continue to work in the hearts of their elders to call the right pastor to that church. We pray that you'd bless that congregation, Lord. Help form them more and more into the likeness of Christ. And God, we ask now for our hearts uh, this morning. 
Lord, first I pray that I may decrease, that you may increase. God, I pray that you would give strength to my voice and strength to my words this morning, that you would sharpen my mind, God, and that I may speak words of encouragement and life to your people. Father, I pray this morning that you would allow us to realize that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, that he is the the all-powerful, sovereign King, the Lord of glory. God, I pray that the bigness and the grandeur and the glory of the power of our mighty God uh, would diminish uh, our problems, God, that we would help see our light and momentary afflictions in light of your great, glorious power. So, Father, I pray that you would make much of this time together. We pray that you would encourage the hearts of your people. Convict where necessary, God. Lead us to your truth. Sanctify us in that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tate Branham uh, was my neighbor for five years uh, when I lived down in the low country in Manning, South Carolina. Uh, He was an extremely special young man. Uh, He was one of of two twins. that were born. His brother Owen did not survive. Uh, He's full of joy and laughter, brings his parents tremendous delight. When he was a young child, uh, the nurse made a mistake um, in his care. They left him under the the heat lamp uh, for too long, uh, which caused severe uh, brain damage. His life Um, Tate dealt with his blindness, being autistic, and aspects of cerebral palsy because of his care as a young child. His father has always prayed that Tate would just say five words in his lifetime. I lived with this family for five years in real close proximity and never heard Tate speak. Uh, He was mute. Various issues caused Tate to be on a tremendous amount of medication. Uh, Tate's mother, Heather, is a faithful woman of God, loves to seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, She just prayed one moment, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, will you just take Tate off all his medication? I know he's been on a lot. Just take him off all all his medication. This, this, This feeling lasted for about six months. She finally conceded to the, that, that still small voice of the Spirit, took out this Took him off medication. Um, only a few months later, Tate, who goes to the school of the deaf and blind in Spartanburg, um, seemingly out of nowhere, just spoke, Mama. Mama. Never spoken a single word in his life for 11 years until that day. The Spirit of Christ led his mother to remove him from all medication, and God started to show in power the prayers, the answered prayers of a father. Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ was communicated to Tate Branham on that day. And not only to him, but his family and all who who know him. The power of Jesus Christ is still working in the lives of his people today. Do you believe in that power? Do you believe that God can still do miraculous things? All Christians must believe that God's power, because it comes from the gospel, we cherish. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe. 
The gospel communicates the power of Christ in our lives. When we're confronted with the gospel, it is the power of God that causes our hearts to believe. Even in the verse I read earlier, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made us, what, alive. The power of God comes into our lives. Believing in Jesus Christ is the foundation of experiencing his power. Throughout the life of Jesus, people were confronted with his power. We're forced to make a choice. Is this Jesus Lord, or is he something else? C.S. Lewis, the, probably the best theologian, one of the best theologians of the 20th century, explains that based on biblical testimony, Jesus Christ is one of three things. He's either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. He's either Lord because he is God. He's either a liar because he knows he's not God, but tells people that he is, or he's a lunatic. He believes himself to be God, but he's not, and doesn't know he's not. So when approaching Christ, Lewis says you are confronted with a choice. He's either your Lord, he's a liar, or he is a lunatic. So I guess the question for us this morning is, do you believe in the power of Christ? Do you believe who Jesus Christ reveals himself to be from the Holy Scriptures? Is Jesus Christ Lord or not? A right understanding of Jesus Christ has always been under attack. In the history of the church, most heresies or false teachings arise from one of two areas. They, they, they say that Jesus Christ was not fully man, that he was something other than fully man, or he is not fully God. So this morning, I want to encourage you to look at the, the, the fullness of God in Christ, that Jesus Christ truly is fully God by focusing on his miraculous birth. So if you have your outline provided for you in the bullets, there's four things I want to draw to your attention this morning. First, the Son of God demonstrates power in his virgin birth. Demonstrates power in his virgin birth. Look back with me at the text this morning, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to be a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. Now, the word virgin there is an important one for us Christians. In the Old Testament, we read this last week, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says that God is going to send the Messiah through a, a virgin. The word in the Hebrew there, Amua, uh, is, is, is only, trans, only looked at in the Old Testament as a virgin. That could be translated as a young maiden. Now, those who are writing the New Testament, their version of the, of the Bible they use was something called the Septuagint. It was the Hebrew Bible translated into uh, English. And they would have used a word for young maiden here, which is different than the word for virgin. So the writers of the New Testament, the, 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 all, the Dr. Luke in this case, believes that Mary truly is a virgin. That's, that's important. The, the text says, A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the son of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Like all of us, Mary was one who was a sinner who found favor with God by hearing from his word. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom there will be no end. You even see some of the language there alluded to what I read earlier in Daniel chapter 7. Right? This illusion that there's going to be one like the Son of Man who's going to, to be on a forever throne. His dominion is going to be forever and ever. Now, Mary, at this point in her life, knows she's a virgin, and someone just said she's going to have a child. So what is she going to say? Verse 34, And the angel, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? So the New Testament writers, as well as Mary herself, claims to be a virgin. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And he goes on to talk about Elizabeth. And then he says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The birth of Jesus Christ was a miracle. Full stop. Mary was a virgin, and yet she was pregnant with a child. When told she was going to have a child, she asked, How will this be? The Bible testifies, through Mary's own words, that it would be impossible for her to be with child. Impossible. Kevin DeYoung, a senior, the senior pastor of the Reform, University Reformed Church in Lansing, Michigan, wrote an article. He starts it this way. It's no secret that in recent history, the doctrine of the virgin birth, or more precisely, the virginal uh, conception, has been ridiculed as a fairy tale, make-believe, by many outside the church, and by not a few voices inside the church. Two arguments are usually mentioned. First, the prophecy about a virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14. It is argued, actually speaks of a, a young woman and not a virgin. As I said, the, the Hebrew word there has a semantic, a large semantic range, but everywhere in the Old Testament, the nine times that word is used, when the context is clear, it is always referring to a virgin. Second, young, the young says, many have objected to the virgin birth because they see it as a fair, fairly typical bit of pagan mythologizing. By the way, y'all, I didn't get much sleep last night. My daughter and I spent nine and a half hours in the emergency room. So if I stutter, give me grace. That's a big word, too. Anyway, he says Star Wars has a virgin birth. Mithrasium has a virgin birth. Christianity has a, big, has a virgin birth. Big deal. They're all just fables. In our society, our rational, western, secular worldview, the virgin birth and all forms of the supernatural will always be under attack. Because if you can't explain it by facts, you don't want to believe it at all. Uh, Rob Bell, a, a former pastor of a megachurch also in Michigan, implied the virgin birth was a 
not essential to the Christian faith. Would you say that believing that, that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary is a non-essential to the Christian faith? Or would you say it is mandatory to believe? Well, this is what Rob Bell says. Now, noted when he wrote this, he was a pastor. He wrote this in his book called The Velvet Elvis. I quote, What a tomorrow. Someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real, earthly, biological father named Larry. And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the, the followers of Merthyr or diocesan, religious cults that are hugely popular at the times of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. He continues, I affirm historic Christian faith which includes the virgin birth and the Trinity and the inspiration of the Bible and much more. But if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine or rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Bell, like many others, have been influenced by this Western, secular, humanistic worldview believe that the virgin birth is just a non-essential, that you can still not believe in and be a follower of Christ. I mean, is Bell right? Does Christianity demand a belief in the virgin birth of Christ, or is it a non-essential? Again, DeYoung helps us here by responding to those who doubt the importance of the virgin birth by providing four reasons why The virgin birth is an essential tenet to the Christian faith. He writes four things. First, the virgin birth is essential to Christianity because it has always been essential to Christianity. Second, the gospel writers clearly believe that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. Third, the virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus was truly human and truly divine. And fourth, the virgin birth is essential because it means Jesus did not inherit the curse of depravity that clings to Adam's race. Lord willing, we will work to unpack the implications of what he's saying, the implications of believing in uh, the virgin birth. But I want you to first just notice the text this morning. The angel's answer to Mary. The angel responds to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary is confronted with the power of God. She has a choice. Will she accept God's word and his power, or will she merely deny it? Will you accept God's word and his power, or will you merely deny it? The clear implication of the virgin birth of Christ is intimately connected with the power of God. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the power of God. To deny one is to deny the other. And we, like Mary, want to respond in kind. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There is no one here today, as far as I know, who has been approached by an angel who was a virgin who was said to be with child. 
But all of us want God's word to be true, that whoever so calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We, like Paul said, are not ashamed of the gospel, for we believe it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. How could God forgive you for all your sins against him? How could God forgive your lies, your lust, your laziness? How could he overlook your slander, your sexual immorality, your sinful pride? Beloved, remember Jesus' words to those who asked him how or who then can be saved in the story of the rich young ruler. Who can be saved from their sins? Luke 18.27, Jesus responds, What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The virgin birth confronts us with God's power. Will we believe to question the virgin birth is to question the very power of God and, along with it, your very salvation. If God says, if you deny the virgin birth, deny the virgin birth here, in that same vein he says, um, for, what is, for nothing is impossible with God, and then speaking about salvation, he says the same thing, nothing is impossible with God, he's trying to connect the two. If you deny one, you deny the other. When you are confronted with the supernatural in the Bible, do not believe the rational, secular, humanistic worldview of our society. It says, do not believe. Trust in God's word and say, yes. The first point, God demonstrates his power by his virgin birth. The second thing, the Son of God demonstrates purpose in his virgin birth. Purpose in his virgin birth. The virgin birth is essential because the virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus Christ is truly human and truly divine. The the way Jesus Christ is spoken about in the New Testament always reveals his divinity. He is God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Colossians chapter 1. Just turn to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to follow this line of argument. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice verses 19 and 20 there. The fullness of God, peace through the blood of his cross. The fullness of God, the peace through the blood of his cross. Go to chapter 2. 
referenced this earlier, two, chapter, chapter 2, verse 9. This is, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Same idea. You have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against him with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now this is critical. Notice when speaking about the divinity of Christ, i.e. being the Son of God, born from a virgin, is intimately connected with the gospel of forgiveness. In Colossians 1.19, you saw that, For in him the fullness of dwell, uh, deity dwells bodily, peace by the blood of his cross. You see the same thing in Colossians 2.9-14. Paul directly links the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, to the essential truth of forgiveness in the gospel. Jesus Christ was fully man, so as to die for man as a man. But he was God incarnate, so that death on the cross would, not, would satisfy. His death on the cross would satisfy God's legal demands. Why? Because he lived a holy life. The angel gave Mary a great therefore about her child. The Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The only way the legal demands, the legal demands against you and me of God's righteousness that can be dealt with is the holy, perfect sacrifice of the Son of God. The divinity of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation. So if you deny the virgin birth, you deny the only thing that can save us from death. The one who is able to, to pay the legal demands on the cross because of his holiness. The great truth of the gospel is that all our sins that stood against us, that kept us from being reconciled to God, have been met in Christ. When we repent of our sins turn from our sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God takes the, the righteous, holy life of Christ and He gives it to us. And then He takes all our sins upon Him on the cross. At that moment, we are united with Christ. This is why God gives us two physical symbols of that reality. The, the, the water of baptism which we feel and we rise out of the Lord's Supper where we eat and drink and physically taste the reality that we are united, one with Christ. Well, let me move through these last two points quickly. The third point, the Son of God demonstrates power in His victorious life. Not only in His virgin birth, but in His victorious life. The holiness of God is essential for our salvation. The virgin birth of Christ is essential because it means that Jesus did not inherit the curse of depravity that clings to Adam's race. Paul begins Romans 1 this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, 
who is descended from David according to the flesh, his humanity, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, at his birth, Jesus was announced that he would be the Son of God and was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The virgin birth of Christ is intimately connected with the resurrection or the new birth of Christ. The power that overshadowed Mary is the power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. To lose one is to lose the other. Jesus Christ is confirmed again and again in the New Testament as perfect, righteous, and holy. Jesus demonstrated the resurrection power throughout his life by living in a holy, righteous way. And now the last point. Now he delights in offering that power to us. The Son of God delights in perfecting his victorious life. The Son of God delights in perfecting his victorious life. Praise God that our Father is a good Father. We think about Christmas this season and how many dads want to give good gifts to their kids, right? They want to shower their kids with blessing. No good father gives bad gifts to their kids. And our Father delights to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him. I want to show you how the power that overshadowed Mary in the virgin birth, announcing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and then declaring that He was the Son of God through His resurrection from the dead, that power that did that through His Spirit is now that confirms that we are children of God. Let's end in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. So once you see this connection and then we'll close. Romans 8. I'm going to read all the way to verse 17. I want you to see Paul's argument here. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Legal demands met, nailed to the cross. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. And listen to this transition. You, however, you, however, church, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, hear these words. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that overshadowed Mary, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is the same spirit that lives in you. And is going to empower you to live the holy, righteous life for God's glory and God's glory alone. And this is why he says in, in verses 12 through 14, So then, brothers, we are not debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just hear me. The spirit that declared Jesus born of a virgin as the son of God is this in his birth and the, the new birth that also testifies with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. When we in our Western intellectual secular minds want to undercut the virgin birth, we're under, undercutting our assurance of salvation by the same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that, that gave Jesus life in Mary is the same Spirit that gives life to you that says that you are a child of God. Beloved, do not deny the virgin birth. For with God, all things are possible. We are holy because Christ is holy. The power that declared Jesus, the Son of God, dwells in you. And it will give life to your mortal bodies. Beloved, the virgin birth is far more important than we realize. Let us not be swept away in this, the secular spirit of the age, but know all the reasons why that Jesus Christ is and will always be Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would believe in the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen.